I appreciate the opportunity to be here. This is probably, well, I think this is the second time that I've actually preached in four years. And uh, I retired as a military chaplain. I did that for 24 years, a total of 30 years in the military. And that was back in 2012. But I never pastored a church. I went into, uh, I went into counseling and I identify as a, as a Christian counselor. But I had a bit of, a, of an identity crisis because I didn't want to call myself chaplain because I'm no longer a chaplain. And I'm okay without all the honorary things. It wears out after a while, you know, like chaplain, chaplain, chaplain. Well, I'm no longer a chaplain, but I didn't pastor a church. And so I wondered, so I'm fine with Don Zapsik in that, in that bulletin because I think that people that pastor, men who pastor churches, I think it's a very special calling. I think for that pastor and the family, it is a dawning task. It uh, can be a very difficult task. So I am perfectly fine with them carrying the title of pastor. And that's fine. So where does that leave me? Well, I talked to a gentleman down at Liberty University. He actually works in the seminary. And his name's Leo Purser. And I brought my identity crisis to him. I said, Dr. Purser. And since I'd gone to Liberty for my Christian counseling degree, I felt it would be okay to talk to him and uh, since I'd gone to that school. But what he had told me was very helpful. He said, you have a pastoral calling. So for anybody here who has ever been in a ministry that's no longer in active ministry, you still have a calling. And for me, it's a pastoral calling. So whether I'm doing my counseling practice, whether I'm just walking down the street, I bear the responsibility of that calling. And I think those types of callings stay with us. Now, I don't know how you think about that, but anybody that knows that somebody else has been ordained, don't you expect a little bit more out of them, even if they're not actively pastoring or an active missionary, because God has put his calling upon their life. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. It is not lost on me. And Mark, I appreciate you inviting me to come and speak. And with that, let's, uh, let's uh, open in prayer. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this Sunday morning. Lord, there are people here, your people here. All people are your people. But there are some people that may not be your children because they have not received your spiritual adoption through being born again by faith through grace based upon the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross, shedding his blood for our sins, that we may find pardon, that we may find redemption, that we can not only be your adopted sons and daughters, we can spend eternity in heaven with you, and I'm so grateful for that. Father, there are people here, uh, you know all of our hearts and our minds and our situations. Lord, I pray this morning that this message, however skillfully or clumsily it may be presented, Father, that the Holy Spirit that is behind these words that I speak from your holy book would find their mark. In Jesus' name, amen. How many here have heard a sermon on Isaiah 40, 28 through 31? You know, mounting up as, as, as wings on eagles, I mean, it's just one of probably the most preached passages from a pulpit. 
And I've noticed since I've been saved in, at around 20 years old that there are certain passages that are well-worn and other ones aren't preached on much at all. And this is a very well-practiced and beloved passage because it talks about how you find strength for the journey, how you find the, the strength to be able to confront the problems in your life, the challenges in your life. And I understand a lot about the problems that people face because of my counseling work that I do, because people come to me, and if they don't have problems, I'm wondering what problem they do have. So if somebody walks through my door and they sit down, and I say, how can I help you? What's bothering you? If they were to say to me, well, nothing's bothering me. I'm, I'm fine. Well, my next question would be, well, why are you here? <laughs> like, why are you here? What do you, what do you want me to do? You know, well, I just want somebody to talk to. Okay, I can do that. I can listen. But you know, it's normally what we don't do. But I hear a lot of problems. And in my last five years actively, well, actually seven as a, as a counselor, I've learned a lot more about how difficult people can have it, and how different people's lives can be. Person, one person can have a very loving situation that they come from. They can have very nurturing parents and a good family situation growing up, a good economic situation growing up, and other people. It is like the tale of two cities. I never read that book, but... I think they're probably two different cities, or probably wouldn't be a tale between the two. Probably a tale of con contrast, but it amazes me just some of the struggles that people have in life early on. Not everybody's had a good childhood. In fact, some people have had very traumatic childhoods, and other people haven't. Other people have been very blessed, been raised in Christian homes. But God is the great equalizer. No matter what our problems have been, no matter what our problems are, God has the balm of Gilead. And God can give us a life worth living, a life filled with purpose, a life filled with meaning, a reason to get up in the morning, a reason to be grateful to be alive and to be grateful that even though our circumstances aren't, even the, aren't always the greatest, we have a great Savior, a great God. He can fix broken marriages. He can fix broken hearts. He can help people to heal. It might not be instantaneous. It may be instantaneous. But there is power in this life. This is not just a, a community gathering, um, per se, of a bunch of nice people getting together to hear a philosophical uh, lecture that will, that will just intrigue their, their mind. Uh, we meet with God when we come to church, and God confronts us where we're at in our lives, but he also encourages us. He just doesn't beat us down like a tent peg whenever we're not tracking spiritually. He loves us. He cares about us. And when we don't experience that in our earthly life, and when things are difficult, it's sometimes hard to get a hold of that. So, that being said, the year was 1976, and the place was Western Beaver High School. And if anybody, does anybody know where East Liverpool, Ohio is? 
I grew up about eight miles east of East Liverpool, Ohio, which is about 25 miles from Pittsburgh. And, uh, <clears throat> well, that was where my school was. And I was a football player, but my coach wanted me to run track so that I would stay in shape for football season. I didn't work very hard at it. I wasn't very dedicated at it. And I weighed about 195 pounds, which isn't a real good weight for a sprinter to begin with. But I decided that I would run the 220-yard dash for my high school because we didn't have one that day. And I ran the 100-yard dash, and my best run, that was 100-yard, you know, 100-yard dash. Does yards scare anybody? Do we still run in high school 100-yard dashes? For anybody that just came out of high school, we do not. We run 100 meters. And I've got a bit, a bit of a bone to pick about weights and measures because I went to the VA the other day and I stepped on the scale and I said, I'm reading the scale and it said 92 something. And I'm like, I'm 92 pounds? And the, the nurse said, uh, no, that's metric. And I said, well, what am I in pounds? And she said, I don't know. It's a new system. She told me, she did the calculation. She said, uh, you weigh 204 pounds. So, okay, thanks, but a little scared. Um, I like yards. I like pounds. I like ounces. Standard measure. So I run this 100-yard dash. And I was doing great. Has anybody ever ran, well, it wasn't a 100-yard dash, so I was running the 220. Has anybody ever ran the 220 in here? 220-yard dash? Okay, Jenna, one person. There's a problem, and I, I didn't get this figured out. So I took off. I was running really good. I was about 15 yards ahead of everybody. Never ran this race in competition before, but I knew the principles of it. And about halfway around the track, well, I wouldn't even say halfway around the track, maybe about a third of the way around the track. I was 15 yards ahead of everybody as far as I could tell. But the problem was is that my lungs were on fire and my legs felt like rubber. And I'm like, uh-oh, I still have quite a bit to go here. And the result was I had started well but didn't have enough strength for the journey. Final result, last place. My trophy, a charley horse. <laughs> my speed and my stamina could only take me so far. I'd aspired, but couldn't attain. And what I'd like to say to everybody this morning, I'm not talking this morning about perfection. I'm talking about leading, not a perfect life, I'm talking about leading an overcoming life. And there's a difference between an overcoming life and a perfect life. A perfect life is unattainable. That's why Christ died on the cross for us. But we still, as Christians, as believers, we still are called to live a perfect life. So there's this tension between God tells us to be overcomers but he also tells us to lead a perfect life. Is anybody in here perfect this morning? Or how long have you been perfect? 
if you've been perfect for an hour. Did anybody on the way to church today uh, attain imperfection by losing your temper or having an argument away on the way here? Yeah, that would be a breach in perfection. God calls us to be perfect. Could you imagine if God didn't write the Bible to say that we're supposed to be perfect? If he said, you can be imperfect, but be perfect most of the times, could you imagine where we might go with that when we made a mistake? Well, you know, God didn't tell me I had to be perfect. He said I could be imperfect, so I have permission to sin. I have permission to sort of do my own thing sometimes, and it's, it's okay. It's not okay. The language had to be written that we are to be perfect, that sin should always be taken seriously because sin hurts us. It detracts from the quality of our life. It robs the power that we have to walk with God. But yet, God acknowledges that we are imperfect and that we will make mistakes. And while he doesn't make an excuse for being us being imperfect, he does make an allowance for our imperfection, and that is through Christ. Christ has atoned, provided an atonement for our sins. We come and we confess our sins. He washes us. He cleanses us from our sins. It's important to make that distinction because if we think that God will only love us if we're perfect, we've got a real problem for two reasons. First of all, we're not going to be perfect. And secondly, if we believe that, we will believe that God doesn't love us because we haven't been perfect. So if we really believe that, now, I don't know about you, but sometimes the devil starts kicking me around a little bit and he'll start talking in my ear and say, well, you know, you blew that one, you know. You'll never be good enough for God. You ever feel like you will never be good enough for God? Kind of in a way where I will never be good enough for God, and the rest of that sentence is, I'll never be good enough for God, and he will not love me because I'm not good enough. God loves us as we are, but the better we are, the better our life, and the more we'll be blessed. And... I'm all about blessing. Does anybody want to be unblessed this morning, by the way? Didn't think so. Okay. So, getting back to strength. Our natural strength sometimes will let us down. Lungs burning, legs staggering, wobbly, because we're doing things in our own strength. Let's face it. We only have so much gas in the tank. Natural strength often allows us to get by in the mundane things of life, but never in the supernatural realm. In the supernatural realm, in the spiritual realm. And after all, God says, what about our righteousness? All of our righteousness in a human context, in human strength, is as filthy rags before God. And it doesn't mean that doing good isn't important, and being right isn't important, and being spiritual isn't important. What it means is, for a person who does not put on Christ, does not put on the mind of Christ, who expects God to receive him and her on good terms based upon their own righteousness, that they're going to be sorely disappointed because man at his best is never enough for God without Christ. So whether it be 
the unregenerate mind or the carnal mind divorced from the mind of Christ and estranged from the Holy Spirit, both of those conditions will cause a spiritual bankruptcy that will cut a person off from an active, vibrant relationship with God. Now, did you catch what I said about the carnal mind? I didn't just say the lost. I said the carnal mind, the seduced mind, the mind that has been seduced by the world, the mind that has no appetite for hearing God's word, the heart that has no longing for communion with God. Now, there's a lot of discussion about if a person lives a carnal life, are they truly saved? Now, what I'm saying here comparing a believer with a carnal mind to a lost person in terms of their spiritual effectiveness and their power for the journey. It's a bit of my own conjecture, I believe, and I think it makes sense. If I am estranged from the Holy Spirit, if I've grieved the Holy Spirit, well, if I've grieved the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is grieved against me and the Holy Spirit is the comforter and the Holy Spirit illumines my mind and and speaks truth to me and opens my understanding. If I've grieved the Holy Spirit with a carnal mind, how much strength am I going to have for the journey? And I'm not going to make an overall statement. God can do whatever he wants to do, but I do know that that carnal mind is definitely going to drain the spiritual walk that a person has with the Lord. And so I don't want to have a a carnal mind. And one of the ways I find I have a carnal mind is when I don't want to read the Word of God, when I don't want to hear the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean when you're going down the road, when you're going through the radio station, when you hear a sermon and you stop because you think, oh, you know, I need to listen to this sermon because it's on. And if I go to a, you know, to music somewhere else, somehow I'm not being spiritual. You can pass up, you know, the radio preacher. That's okay. But on Sunday morning, that's a little different. So, spiritual bankruptcy. Spiritual bankruptcy can take on many forms. And if you're wondering if I'm going to get to Isaiah 40, 28 through 31, yes, I will. But I will get there very soon. We can be spiritually bankrupt, whether carnal or lost. Lost being somebody who's unsaved, someone who has not invited Christ into their life. But, you know, unsaved means that God hasn't saved me. It doesn't mean that I haven't chose Christ. It means that Christ hasn't chose me. But I still have to respond to the Holy Spirit drawing me to the Lord. Well, I can be spiritually bankrupt, and I can win a Nobel Peace Prize. I can be a good neighbor. I can be a good husband. I can't be a spiritual husband, but I can be a thoughtful husband. And the reason I say this is because I know people that are lost, that are better spouses 
that I can see than people who claim to be saved and how they treat their spouses. A person can be moral. A person who's spiritually bankrupt is just spiritually bankrupt. They cannot do spiritual things that, have, that are of any account to God. Can a person be moral and not be spiritual? Absolutely. And a person uh, can be a good person and obviously be lost. But when I stray from God, and maybe I'm still moral, I'm still running on my own power. I only have so much patience outside of God. Do you realize that? You can that God has given you a certain amount of goodwill towards people, a certain amount of patience towards your children, a certain amount of love in your heart for those that you care for. Do you, do you know that? I was at Kroger the other day, and I'll get into the text right after this. I only had so much gas in the tank. But fortunately, on that day, I had enough gas. And I think I had some of the Holy Spirit sort of giving me that boost, you know, when you hit the button in those movies when, I don't know, what feeds it. Mark, you might know, what to, when you hit that button, what is it that, is it nitrogen? What is that stuff that, what is that? I got to know. Is it oxygen? But, but you hit that button, I mean, it's just hyper boost, and you're, you just like take off. I'm not going to name the grocery chain because I love it. I love their specials especially, and they have this stale cake that I love to buy, and it's like a dollar, two dollars. I just love it. Well, Doritos are on sale. One dollar and 99 cents if you buy four bags of Doritos. I buy my four bags of Doritos, and I'm at self-serve, and I see a dollar more per bag than what that sign said of what those Doritos were. They ring up at two dollars and 99 cents, Still $3.99 if you don't buy four of them. And um, so I decided to go to customer service after I'd paid for it. And I said to the nice lady, I bought some Doritos here and um, $2.99, and I was being nice, $2.99 is what it says on the receipt. And um, I got, well, the sign says $1.99. And she said to me, well, she said they're $2.99. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of my. You know, this conversation in my head. I'm sorry? Like, no, this is like a, some kind of retail crime here. It says $1.99, and you're charging me $2.99, and you're basically telling me to like it. And sorry. She wasn't sorry. I'm sorry. And I, you know, in Romans 7, Paul talks about, you know, the wretched man, oh, wretched man that I am, that oh, wretched man that I am, the... The flesh was telling me, boy, I'll tell you, you got her right in your gun sight. And just let her have it. The 1 Corinthians 13.4 tells me that I am supposed to be kind. It's sort of a fruit of the Spirit. And that kind of makes it important. So the word informed my opinion that I just couldn't plead my case and just, you know, just do a victory lap around this customer service agent. And I said to her, you know, my 89-year-old father taught me this. He taught me, play helpless. Act like you need help. Don't confront people. Say, I don't understand. You know, I'm, you know, 
would you just help me understand? So I, I thought of what my dad had told me, which was really great. And I asked the lady, I said, I get this wrong all the time. Would you go and would you show me the error of my ways? Because I, I really want to be able to understand an advertised price. And she looks at me and she took pity on me. And she walks out to the front of the store. And um, she looks at the sign because she said, well, you know, it's the digital coupon uh, plus your shopper's card. Just to get my... Well, I said, show me digital. She couldn't find digital. And I thought right there, slam dunk, case one. Okay, just give me my money back. But no, it didn't end there. She goes after the flyer. She goes after the flyer. She disappears in the store, comes back out to the Dorito display. She opens the flyer, and she triumphantly shows me that it says in the flyer, in the ad, that it's, it's the store card plus the digital coupon. And at that point, I'm trying to reconcile the words of God in 1 Corinthians 13.4 with $4 that I want to save on four bags of Doritos, which, by the way, I don't need. I don't need more Doritos. And, you know, and I decided that, okay, enough's enough, and I'm just going to obey God. Now, I don't always have my wife, I don't always have those moments, but as I get older, I think I'm having more of those good moments than not. And I said, okay. And I was going to give up the $4 because I couldn't be kind and get my $4. And so I was going to defer to what God had said. And then she said, but you know what, sweetie? I'm going to give you the $4. She goes back to her register and she typed something in. She gave me the digital coupon discount, she hands me $4, and I get out the door. Now, we can all do nice things on our own power, but there comes a point where our patience runs out. And I think in that situation, my patience did run out, but I reverted to the Word of God, and I drew upon the strength of the Holy Spirit because I knew that it was God's way. And that's sort of what the Christian life is like. We want to do things God's way, because we're not smart enough to figure life out when it comes to the really difficult things, when we know that we've been taken advantage of and we feel righteous indignation, right? If you're angry, what does that mean? It means you're right. And the more angry you get, the more righteous you feel because you wouldn't be so angry if you weren't right. Make sense? I can't be... I'm mad. I got to be right because I'm mad and I really feel mad. So I, I got to be right. And so, but how's that work out for anybody? It doesn't work out. Okay. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Do some people have more power than other people? If you have a problem and you need somebody to pray for you, do you think there would be some people seated in this room that would be better to ask to pray for you than other people? What do you think? If I'm out of fellowship with God and I've got a carnal mind, and you come to me and you say, I'm dying of something, Don, would you pray for me? And if you knew that I was out of fellowship with God, no, nah, don't do that. James 5.16 says the effectual, fervent prayer 
Not everybody can pray effectually and fervently in this area. I try to be effectual and fervent in my prayer, and it's like, <laughs> I'd have a little bit of ADD going there, but I say, Lord, you know my intent. Please. I want an effectual, fervent prayer, but you know, I, my mind just drifts, but you know what I, I want, but I desire it. Uh, but there are people with rich prayer lives, an effectual prayer of a righteous man. And I'm using King James. I, I love the King James. I memorize the King James. But I looked to other versions to update certain words, and when I need more understanding, I do, I do look to other versions. I have no, so you're going to hear King James out of me today. It's just what I use, so I'm not trying to make a case to the exclusion of everything else. So I don't want you to get that idea because that's, that's not what I'm about. But, so the effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and I wondered about, well, what's a righteous man, uh, a righteous person. And I believe what it is saying here, but it, because it is a talking about the effect and the power of prayer based upon a certain spiritual condition that the prayer is in, I think a person can be saved and be an unrighteous person. Because salvation is about, if I'm saved, if I'm a believer, it's talking about what God did for me. The fact that I'm going to heaven doesn't mean I'm better than anybody else, right? We're not going to heaven because we're better. I didn't get redeemed because I'm better than anybody else. I'm not morally superior to a lost person just because I'm saved, but I should be, right? If I've got the power of God working in my life, I should be moral. I should be morally superior, but not in a uh, smug arrogant way, but my faith and my confession should match the manner of my living. So where does the sincere and seeking believer find strength for the journey? And Isaiah the prophet has some divinely inspired thoughts on that subject. These are the words of God, and I'm going to read to you Isaiah 40. Verses 28, 29, 30, and 31. And I'm going to go through that and, um, and just let the Holy Spirit work throughout this auditorium, work in our hearts, work in our minds. So in verse 28, and God is making a plea here. He is making, uh, he's reaching out to the nation of Israel through, through Isaiah, reminding the Israelites of who he is and how this is going to end is because of who I am. This is the power. This is who you can be in spite of the adversity that you face. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth feigneth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that hath no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. 
But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up as wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not be faint. And I just love that passage. I love that part about you know, mounting up with wings as eagles, talking about soaring spiritually. So when Isaiah asks the question, hast thou not known to the nation of Israel, this also applies to us as well. It's the word of God. It was pertinent when it was delivered in real time, and it is just as effective and just as relevant today as it was when it was first proclaimed. Now, in Isaiah 40, 28, has thou not known every person who walks the face of the earth, whoever has or whoever will, knows about God. The atheist is lying and the atheist is in denial because the word of God has been hidden in our heart. Now, have you ever blamed somebody for something? Have you ever accused somebody of something? You know, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth, but if you steal my stuff, guess what? Subjectivity goes right out the window. Hey, you stole my stuff. Well, that's your truth, dude, but you know, I think this bicycle belongs to me. And I had my bicycle stolen when I was a child. But where's the subjective truth with that? No. You see, because the word of God, the knowledge of God has been planted in our hearts and we intuitively know right from wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that the conscience cannot be dulled or by abusing our conscience and suppressing not only the knowledge of God, but also suppressing that, uh, that drift towards God, feeling the gravity of God, a person can darken their mind by continually rejecting God, but they cannot totally drive the existence of God nor the moral gravity of the universe out of their heart. It's impossible because God has put it there. So hast thou not known, hast thou not uh, heard, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. You want to talk about power, that's real power. To be able to create something out of nothing If God can create everything out of nothing by just speaking it into existence, what does that say about God's ability to transform our lives, not only in terms of salvation, but transform our lives where we live in our everyday existence? I'd like to read something to you because talking about man's power, our our power, You know, when we live in our own power, in our own strength, it only takes us so far. Now, think of a sump pump. Does everybody know what a sump pump is? Well, if you don't have a battery on that sump pump, what happens? Power goes out, big rainstorm, you get flooded. But even if you have a battery, how long does the battery last? If you've got power out for several days, battery goes out, right? So we have spiritual batteries, but we also need to be plugged into the power source, which is God. But I want to read this excerpt. This is from an upcoming book called um, Capturing uh, the Moment, 100 Journeys. Or excuse me, Capturing the Big Idea. 
Does everybody, uh, does anybody remember uh, the Apollo 11 and what the Apollo 11 did? The Apollo 11 was the um, space launch that ended up uh, putting a man on the moon. But this compares man's greatest achievement with God's power. Life tends to unfold by fits and starts, bits and pieces. One step forward, two steps back. Three steps forward and two steps back, and so on. Life predictably does not jump 20 steps forward with no retreat. There's always that struggle between, like I said in Romans 7, Paul's talking about about this spiritual struggle that he leads. And yes, that's the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians to ever live. You know, he struggled with sin. And uh, maybe not sin like at the level that we do, but the closer we get to God, the great paradox is the closer that we get to God, what? The more sinful we realize that we are, but it's not that our, our sins are as gross, but we get a better understanding as to the depth of our sinfulness when we understand more about the holiness of God. So progress in the form of incrementalism is more of the order of the day as a human being, the rule and not the exception. Such was the case of the Apollo 11 mission to, to the moon, punctuated with a very exceptional lunar landing and quantum leap. The leap itself was encapsulated in astronaut Neil Armstrong's immortal words, at least as long as the Earth lasts. That's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. This incremental part of the Apollo 11 mission was the thousands of tasks that had to be fulfilled flawlessly to reach that pivotal Point, a moment cultivated in a quantum leap by virtue of being the first of its kind, launching a new era. Now bringing in God's power compared to the Apollo 11 mission. Remarkable as the Apollo 11 mission was, the phrase, it is finished, marked the completion of one covenant between God and man and the beginning of a new one, which is the New Testament, the New Covenant. That short three-word phrase was the last dying words of a triumphant Savior whose blood atonement had paid the penalty of mankind's sins, past, present, and future, once and for all. There was no gradual buildup to this miraculous feat. In one brief moment, this quantum leap changed everything, not only as being a first, but also a last. Christ does not need to be crucified in a cup every week, as some churches practice. The blood atonement of Jesus upon a Roman cross for the sins of the world was not an isolated event. It launched a secondary quantum leap offered to all those who profess saving faith in God. Christ not only died but rose again on the third day from the tomb. The resurrection power that defeated death, now available to transform lives through new birth in Jesus Christ. So when I was talking about our, our own stirring up of our goodness versus the resurrection power 
that took Jesus out of that tomb on the third day is still available to us today, tomorrow, and forever. We don't have to settle for the breadcrumbs. I'm not reading right now, but we don't have to settle for the breadcrumbs of our own morality, of our own goodness. And I also wanted to bring up that everybody here has a certain personality, and some of you are nicer than others. Some of you are nicer than me, okay? You're friendlier. You're bubblier. You actually like seeing people maybe at 8 o'clock in the morning. You like seeing the sun come up. I don't. I don't. However, I have a personality. Oh, where's your joy of the Lord? Well, I'm grumpy. That's just my natural position. It's my, it's my personality. Don't hold it against me. I do have joy. But it isn't like I'm just trying to light up the room. It's inside of me. We're all different. We don't want to compare ourselves to each other. But when you get saved... You have resurrection power at your disposal, but you still have to plug into it. It isn't like salvation where where you're drawn and God saves you when you're walking with God upon this earth. You've got to plug in. You've got to repent. You've got to read your Bible. You have to pray. And you have to admit with God who you are, what your need is and what you'd like him to do about it. He likes that kind of stuff. He just isn't on autopilot. He doesn't want us on autopilot. He wants us to know from where our help comes, where the hill is, we find. Do you look to the hill? Do you look to the hill when prices are going up, when you feel like you're losing control of things that you felt like you had pretty good control of? like your health. For younger people, you might not understand that as well, but as you get older and you get blood tests and stuff, it's, all, it's almost like reckoning day. It's like, oh, you know, where's my cholesterol going to be? Where's my sugar going to be? You know, are they going to find something in my kidneys or my liver? You know, it's just all part of planned obsolescence. That's how God made us. He didn't make, he didn't make us to, to be perfectly healthy until we died 100. I came back from the VA yesterday and I have diabetes and high blood pressure. I've had it for years. Millie said to me, she knew the day of reckoning was coming. I was getting some blood work done, and she said, what did they tell you? So they told me that uh, I only have about 36 more years to live. So just say, (laughs) say you know. Getting back to this long story that I'm reading from this book. Give you a break. The quantum leap of quantum leaps through faith in Jesus Christ, is instantaneous, it's transformative, and permanent. It cannot be undone, it cannot be broken, or for that matter, it can't even be explained. Can anybody explain what happened when you went from being lost to being redeemed? When your heart cried out, Abba, Father, Romans 5.5, can you explain what happened there? When I got saved, uh, I really got hung up on thinking I had to work my way into heaven. When I got saved, I, uh, I, just, I was just transformed. I, I didn't know what happened. I didn't know I was saved. I, God just saved me. It didn't happen in a church, but I was talking to a Christian. But I got saved. I can't explain. It was a miracle. Now I said I don't have a 
probably personality. I'm kind of porcupine-ish sometimes. I get a little working on it. But that day that I was saved and I was adopted into the family, I had a piece. I don't know where it came from, but I mean, man, is that any comparison to launching some piece of equipment into outer space and landing on another planet? I'd say it's a much greater, greater, incomparable experience to be saved and to be transformed spiritually, to be given new life. I can't explain it, but it happened. And every person in here who is saved has experienced that, and you can, expect, you can experience at different levels that same power. But anybody that's been saved in here, you have experienced resurrection power because you can read all the self-help books you want. You can go to a good psychotherapist, uh, you can join the Boy Scouts. You can lead the Girl Scouts. You can, you can give money to the guy on the corner, but there's nothing you're going to do that's going to clean yourself up. Can't do it. Self-reformation is a futile task. It's a fool's errand. So there in Isaiah 28, there is an external as well as an internal witness to the reality of God in our lives. And we can push down emotions. We can push down thoughts. They take a lot of emotional energy to do that. A person can resist the word of God, but deep down inside, we still know that those things are just tugging at our elbow. He giveth power to the faint in Isaiah 40, 29. What does it mean to feel like you're going to faint. Uh, a dictionary definition I looked up of the word faint is weak, dizzy, close to losing consciousness. He giveth power to the faint. When I think of the power that he gives, I think of Philippians 4.13. In Philippians 4.13, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. And I wanted to say a little bit about Isaiah 4.13, or I'm sorry, uh, Philippians 4.13, because he gives power to do his, his will. I cannot do evil things through Christ who strengthens me, right? When the Bible says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me, it's implied that the only power that God is going to give us through the Holy Spirit is the power to do God's bidding. If I'm asking for power and it is not plugged into God's will, it is an exercise in futility. And I'd like to also, talking about those who have no might, there are times that we do feel powerless we do feel helpless, and we feel like we have no alternative. It could be a person with a terminal illness. It could be somebody who's having a problem with their adult child or with uh, having access because of that estrangement where we feel like there's, there's nothing we can do. And prayer kicks in. If we believe, if we pray, God can provide us. You know, 
One of the most valuable things, even when things are going south and they're not working out for us, is hope. Because if I believe in the power of prayer, I have hope. And if I don't have hope, that means I'm probably going to give up. Do you know what the number one factor is in suicide? Speaking a little bit as a, as a clinician right now. It is the loss of hope. A person believes that they have no other alternative but to kill themselves because nothing will bring them relief. They have lost all expectation of help coming from anywhere. You know, think of a high school children, uh, child that goes out, a uh, student will go out and kill himself. And there are three, four, five hundred, a thousand people at that funeral, and people will say, if that person only knew how much he or she was loved, he or she would not have killed themselves, himself, herself. But the truth is that that person is experiencing so much emotional pain and nothing has worked, and they believe that the only thing, the only intervention that's going to work for them is to literally kill themselves and take away the pain that way. They've lost all hope. And spiritually, when we lose all hope and we're no longer praying, that's when we're really in trouble. We never want to underestimate the power of hope that we can instill in other people by telling them about our Savior, telling them about what God has done for us, telling them the pit that we've been taken out of and the promise that we've inherited through the miraculous redemption through Christ. My life was a meth. I had no hope. I gave my mess to God. You know, God, the difference between God and the devil is God will take a mess and make something beautiful out of it. The devil will take something beautiful and will make a mess out of it. There's a saying, turning gold into bronze. You know, children, when they're not properly raised, when they're not nurtured, when they're abused, when they're neglected, a beautiful child can be turned into a troubled child child just by virtue of the mistreatment. But God doesn't turn gold into bronze. He makes beautiful things out of garbage. He makes beautiful things out of things the world doesn't even want to look at, think about, let alone deal with. Verse 30 even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. And what Isaiah is saying here is, is he's saying that when you see that the youth are fainting and they're tired, we have a one-year-old grandson, and we'll sit with him for hours. And I keep saying, when is this kid going to tire? When, when's he going to tire out? When, when's he going to stop? I mean, he's a little... His little elbows are going, his little knees are going. Even when he gets tired, he's screaming. He's crying. It's like, man, even when you're tired, you're full of energy. You're wearing me out. But Isaiah is saying here that if you think you've got strength for the journey, even the strongest among you are following, are falling because they don't have strength for the journey. Well, it gets us to verse 31. If you ever wonder if I was going to get there, 
Because quite honestly, last week I talked about why I like being a Christian. I had five points. I think I got to about three and a half. So, but again, I'm getting there. Just uh, a little out of practice. So, when you think about Isaiah 31, it's a beautiful picture. I'm looking for my note on it, but I'm just going to keep talking. It is a beautiful picture of the power of God. And it talks about, I'm going to forget about the note. Uh, It talks about those who wait upon the Lord. Does it say that God is immediately going to give strength to people who are suffering? Is there any time limit on waiting upon the Lord? Has anybody here been waiting years and years and years for an answer to prayer about something that hasn't been answered? Anybody? Somebody? I know some. You pray. And you pray. Thank you, Mark. And you pray. It's important to understand that God has a timing that is not ours, that when we pray, when we seek God, when we're faint, when we feel like we're going to fall, that God tells us to wait. God will sustain us during that waiting time, but it's not like some cartoon character where, you know, does anybody remember Popeye? I mean, that's old school stuff. For younger people, you probably never heard of him, or they changed who Popeye is, and now it's, you know, he's somebody else, but... He would, eat a, he would eat his spinach when he, when he got in trouble. And uh, he would get these big muscles, and he would just take over, and it was awesome. And uh, he just cleaned out his enemies. And, just, well, the spiritual life is not like that. Uh, we can't just take a can of spinach, and all of a sudden, all of our problems goes away. God teaches us when we wait upon him. Paul talked about the thorn of the flesh. God did not take it away from him. God said, I will make you perfect in my strength, but through your weakness. So we don't want to gauge God's faithfulness upon how long we've waited upon him to give us the strength that we think we need. God will provide the strength that he wants us to have in his time. And a lot of times there's a healing that has to take place whenever we're wounded, whenever we're grieving. You know, God doesn't instantaneously heal grief. I lost a grandfather, of, oh my, it probably is over 20 years ago, and I still grieve the loss of him. If you're grieving and you miss somebody that you really love, by the way, that's not necessarily complicated grief. You just love that person. You wanted that person in your life. But those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And I tie that back to Again, Psalm, or I'm sorry, not Psalm, but Philippians 4.13, where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ will give us the power in the moment. But there's also a, a healing, a restoration problem, a renewing or process and renewing of strength that we need to wait upon God. There's a short-term relief and there's a long-term deliverance sometimes from our problems, and God in a situation may not take away the situation, but he just makes us stronger in the situation, which means he has to spiritually grow us up. And that comes through doing the right thing step by step every day, depending upon God to make up the difference in the margins of what we think 
that we need in our lives and what we experience every day. The idea of mounting up with wings as eagles, of running, not being weary, and being able to walk and not faint. It goes from a progression of soaring to walking, that God will renew our strength in the small areas, and sometimes we'll even soar. And uh, I think of uh, Psalm 51, when David repented of his sin with Bathsheba, uh, in Psalm 51, 8 through 12, he talked about uh, you know, God healing the bones which he had broken because David was in sin. He had a carnal mind. He had an estranged heart. And David said in Psalm 51, 12, he said, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You see, it's just not... This, uh, this isn't a theory. This, this, this isn't like I'm talking about some vague abstraction that when you get power from God, you're not going to know it. David was saying in Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. When we walk away from God or when we're just deeply discouraged and we're grieving because of heavy losses, God will, in his time, restore the joy that goes along with the salvation that he's given you. When we get saved, it's just not a question of entering into heaven. It's a question of a new life. Now, I want to read one last thing to you, and I, I thank you. You've been so good this morning, and you've been attentive, and that means a lot to me. I really do appreciate it. But I've been taught in seminary. You've got to have a good conclusion. You sort of have to tie it in to the beginning. So I just want to tell you in retrospect, as I look back on that foolish 17-year-old budding track star, not, as I look back at it, at it being 63 years old, how I look at it now. The reason that I had failed so miserably had nothing to do with my natural ability. It had much to do with pride and ignorance. I felt I was somehow above the rules. I did not respect the sport or the race before me. Somehow I did not have to be in top physical shape. Somehow I was going to succeed where all else had failed. I thought that I could run the 220 like the 100-yard dash in an open sprint. I had grossly overrated my strength. I wanted to be better. I wanted to be superior just in the moment, just to be ahead by 15 yards, even at great expense and humiliation. By the way, I was limping. I think I was about 30 yards behind everybody else. I I could barely finish. I, I think I walked across, and I got, I got cheers for finishing, but that's not the same as finishing first. So here's my question. Where are you at in your given moment right now? Did you start out well only to discover at the end of your journey that you did not have enough strength? Sin does that to us. We think we can ride the tiger 
of besetting sin, and somehow it's all going to work out spiritually. Strength for the journey involves being plugged in to God's outlet of grace and holiness. There is a long extension cord that goes a long way keeping us plugged in to God's strength for the journey. Are you spiritually plugged in or do you find yourself alienated more and more from God and beaten up by the world, the flesh, and the devil? We all need to ask the question, am I trying to live the Christian life in my own strength? Which, by the way, is exhausting. Christ still calls out, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Another way of saying strength for the journey. Let's pray. If you just take a few moments before I I, I close in prayer, just ask God to reveal to you, especially if you're tired, you're exhausted, you're discouraged, you just take a few moments and ask God to speak to your heart and encourage your heart and to restore that sense of presence in your life and in all clothes. Dear Heavenly Father, if there's someone in here this morning that does not know you, and what I'm saying isn't going to make a lot of sense because they haven't experienced you in a personal way. They have not tasted that resurrection power. So this is a mystery to them. And for those who are here today that do not know you, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon them as you do and you are faithful beyond measure that they would understand that they cannot get saved in, your strength, in their own strength, that salvation is of you and they need to take that tattered life, that exhausting life apart from God, and hand it over to you, that they need to be available to your grace and to your mercy and to your salvation, Lord. I pray that they make a decision to open their hearts to you this day, Father. And for those here today, Lord, that are just exhausted and are tired and beaten up, maybe questioning their faith or maybe questioning your faithfulness, Lord, that you would encourage their hearts, that you would bring them back to their salvation experience, Lord, and that their minds would be sensitive and aware of the condition that they were in as I was in before I got saved, Lord, if you would just remind them of the resurrection power that far surpasses man's greatest achievement, Lord. I pray for them this morning. I pray for the new pastor coming in, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would bless him and that the people here would not only love him, but show that love in a way that will encourage the new man coming in, Father. I thank you for these people, Lord, that have been through a long dry stretch, Father, that they would be encouraged and rewarded for their faithfulness, Father. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.